Well, hello everybody and welcome to the Weirdly Magical podcast with Jen and Lou. And on this episode, we're actually doing something very different. We're interviewing um, author uh, Carolyn Elliott about her book, um, Existential, Existential Kink. Um, now, I have known um, Carolyn online since April 2013. We've been friends, Carolyn. Did you know that? We became, we became friends. You had a really viral blog post back in 2013. And I read that and I friended you then. And I kind of lost touch. You know what Facebook's like? You don't see people's posts all the time. And then this came up and I was like, oh, it's Carolyn. <laughs> Wow, that is, you have a long memory. Oh, I checked on Facebook how long we've been friends. I don't remember the date. But uh, yeah, so I've been aware of you and your work for quite a long time, and, and Jen has also. So um, shall we start by you telling us a little bit about your book? But first of all, congratulations. It's doing really well. I saw you post about it today. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... The book, the premise, Existential Kink, so it's a kind of a sexy, provocative title. And what it's about is the way which we all, if we are honest with ourselves, have some kinky, freaky, sadomasochistic desires inside of ourselves that are usually very unconscious, very repressed, very disowned, um, that rule our lives. Um, and it's, it's, basically a universal human thing. And Carl Jung pointed it out. He said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you will call it fate. Mm. And um, I came across this quote and I became very, very interested in it because it seemed like I was fatefully repeating a whole bunch of yucky stuff. Mm -hmm. And I started to be like, you know, is there some unconscious resonance, some unconscious desire, curiosity that I have for these difficult circumstances at the time. I was broke. I was in all these lousy relationships. And um, with a lot of self-inquiry and honesty, I gradually discovered that, yes, indeed, there was a part of me that just loved scarcity, humiliation, rejection, <laughs> all of these things that you're not supposed to want, that nobody is supposed to want because they're bad, obviously. And, um, you know, so it's been a, it's a big process to come into realizing this. And it seems like you ladies have done some self-examination because you're, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. So the book Existential Kink is basically about how none of us need to be ashamed about this. This is a natural human thing. And the invitation is present to really be gently, humorously, playfully, sexily present with these freaky, kinky, scary desires and make them conscious so they no longer rule our lives. So they are no longer these compulsive patterns that we're just playing out without even realizing what we're doing. Um, because when a desire is conscious, it actually has much less power <laughs> than an unconscious desire. Mm -hmm. And and so part of the whole art of magic is getting a desire embedded in the unconscious so it will actually be fruitful, right? Like that's what so much ritual, visualization, et cetera, is about. So this is sort of about the opposite process of making what's already in the unconscious conscious. And um, I'll just pause right there because I can go on forever. <laughs> well, I'll let Jen ask her question. Right. <laughs> You know what comes to mind, and I know you put it in the book in the front, was about Kore, 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 I guess that's her pronunciation, about the separation, the whole, the queen, the one that was whole and complete and then bored, which I think is a great point. You know, this idea of being bored is something that we don't take into account. And it makes me think when you're talking is about Eve, the whole idea about, you know, Eve being tempted because, you know, and I'd love to get your take on this, because to me, when I think about being in the perfection of the paradise, uh, it must have been extremely boring. Oh, yes. So, Jen, I'm glad you asked me about that. I actually wrote about this most recently in my love course. I opened the love course with this little story, which is the one day Eve, you know, woman, the goddess, 
likewise, this is very parallel to the Corey story. Um, she got, you know, she just had millennia in this beautiful garden where everything was perfect and delightful. And she was in total harmony all the time with her guy, Adam. And it was just boring, boring, boring. And she was like, geez, you know, can something else happen around here? Like, can we get some other action going on? And uh, her friend, the snake, appeared, and the serpent was like, hey, eat this apple. It'll make you forget that you are omnipotent and omnipresent and a goddess who gives birth to all things. Um, you'll eat it, and it'll seem like the world is divided in two, into things that are right, things that are wrong, things that are good, things that are evil. Um, you'll have this very split judgmental perception. You'll completely forget that you have power over all of it. And it'll be really exciting because you'll, you'll feel victimized and then you'll feel like you have to triumph over things and be righteous. And it's just going to be awesome. And she was like, sounds great. Can <laughs> <be simple."> and, <laughs> and then we had, you know, the past, uh, however many thousands of years. And now here we are. And I think that the time has come where women especially are starting to be like, hey, you know what? I kind of remember deciding to eat that apple. <laughs> um, and I'm gonna, I think I don't need to have the same reactivity that I did in the past. I don't need to keep feeling victimized. I don't need to keep feeling righteous. I can really sink in to connecting to my, my divinity and have a new relationship to all of the troubling things in my life, in the world, a relationship that's, um, well, that relates to it as a divine comedy instead of a divine tragedy. And I'm, I'm very excited <laughs> about that. And I'm excited <laughs> the ladies seem to really get the oh, Well, Jen and I have talked often about kind of rewriting these myths for, uh, you know, and, and to talk to the um, Adam and Eve story, um, I'm an astrologer and Lilith was, of course, believed to be the snake and she's all that's bad and evil and all this kind of stuff. and uh, your book ties in so much I wrote a book recently too by the way and I wrote about reclaiming the night energy and the feminine energy and rewording everything so that it's not all bad and good and <laughs> embracing all of it so it's very in alignment with the book so um so you I, I looked I mean your book honestly Read, just reading it and I only had time to skim read it I'm flying to Spain on Wednesday so I'm gonna take it with me and go through over again but I love the way you talked about the turn on and everything and taking responsibility for your life and I have to say just reading it's quite the turn on so <laughs> <laughs> just reading just reading the process I was like getting those tingles and thinking <laughs> not quite sure what my um, question is there but I do want to say um, you know you you said um, something about um, our perverse desires for pain in daily existence and I, I wrote a question about acknowledging that can be a struggle for some you know because it can straddle or be used for victim blaming so how do you address that I know you address it in the book but look. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that is a common objection when people first hear about this, um, especially when they see the first axiom of existential kink, which is having as evidence of wanting, very controversial, challenging axiom. Mm -hmm. um, and what I have to say about that is, first of all, uh, I've experienced a goodly amount of hardship in my life. I, had, I was molested as a child, I experienced sexual assault, I've experienced rape. Obviously, many people have had it much harder than me, but I've, I've had a taste of what atrocity can feel like. And, um, okay, hold on, I'm dialing it back a little bit. Um, <laughs> I was just about to launch into this whole thing. I'm so sorry, Louise, could you please repeat your question so I okay. can nicely answer it? <laughs> I was just, I just said it can be used as victim oh right, right right there we go victim yeah. Okay. yeah so what i really want to emphasize and share with everybody is that the philosophy of existential kink it's actually even more offensive than victim blaming because it's about <laughs> yeah it's about blaming no one so no blame for victims no blame for perpetrators just because we're all on this wheel of samsara i've been a perpetrator millions of times I've been a victim millions of times. 
we all have been. And I know that that can be very far out to hear for people who don't have, um, you know, a personal felt sense of their own past lives and larger soul things, but you ladies do. And, um, right. But it's, so looking at it from that pulled out perspective, taking a bit more of, um, I guess, sort of an equilibrated perspective and seeing that blame is pointless. There's no need for blame. All that blame does is keep the unconscious harmfulness spinning around. Mm -hmm. Shame something, if you blame it, it just drives it deeper into the unconscious where it has more generative power Um, because the unconscious is feminine and it's like a womb. It receives Mm. seeds and then it gives birth to things that reflect those those seeds in the world. So, so what I needed to do with dealing with and healing with my own experience was I spent about 10 years in regular therapy and 12-step groups, raging and grieving. And I highly, highly recommend that for anybody who's been through any kind of hardship um, to do move mountains to get whatever support you can in your grief and your rage. And some of us have been through that grief and rage to the point that it's become very boring. We're just bored with it. And it's no longer fun. It's no longer interesting. It no longer even has any juice. It's just like, uh, Mm -hmm. there's that, you know? And so what existential kink offers is if you are at this point in your journey is another way of relating to these painful, difficult, scary things in life. And it's never about saying like, oh, you caused this, you wanted it, how dare you, you're so bad. Mm -hmm. It's about recognizing that we all want it collectively. You know, it's it's hard to make a distinction, although I try to sometimes, between the individual and the collective unconscious, because the collective is in every one of us. Mm -hmm. And obviously the collective produces some scary stuff, war, racism, sexism, all the rest of the isms. And um, it's, difficult to say like okay I I think we all our egos want to distance ourselves from that like as an ego I know I want to say like oh not me I only want good stuff I want the best for everybody I don't want war to happen I don't want this nasty horrible stuff to happen Mm -hmm. um but if I but obviously the collective does and if I'm being really honest with myself I know that the collective is a part of me Mm -hmm. um so getting into that, going to that deep of a level is sometimes important and necessary. And I guess I would say it, it absolutely is important and necessary for those who are ready to do that. Um, just for the reason that the unconscious, the collective is never going to heal if we all continue to deny our responsibility for it, right? Mm-hmm. So I had to take responsibility for my own attraction to violation, for my own violatingness, for my own, you know, fascination with it, everything like that. I'm willing to own that. That's a part of me. That's a part of my humanity. Mm -hmm. Um, That's my plutonic dimension right there. And the more, and what's interesting is that as I own that and as I take responsibility for that more, the less I tend to act it out in my life. Because um, there's... You know, I never raped anybody, for example, but there were all sorts of sideways ways where somebody would say like, hey, that, I felt really violated when you said that. That was really awful. Mm-hmm. And I would be like, whatever. <laughs> you know, I didn't do, you know. Yeah. But it was like, there's, um, there's different ways that it gets expressed with that quality of violatingness. Mm-hmm. As long as I think that I'm never, ever violating and I never, ever can be that, then I don't have conscious wielding of that energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it comes out in sideways ways. And I think that this is true of, of everything, that as long as I want to distance myself from something and be like, oh, that's so awful. That's something that those evil, wrong people over there do. That's mm-hmm. not something that's ever a part of me. The more, uh, the more awful I am, actually. <laughs> so yeah. I'll pause right there. <laughs> no, I <laughs> right. Okay. So, you know, fascinating to think about the idea that we are, um, you know, we can choose to blame. Right. But I, I think the other part is now that we're expanding into a new world, right. Where we on this, at this portal where we actually get to go, Oh, 
I do want to um, kind of, you know, you know, I'm reminded of the sleeping beauty idea of being kissed in some way so I can uh, wake up to what is true, right? So I can kind of throw up the piece of the apple and come into that. Mm-hmm. So um, my question here is that how do we open the door to our inner kink? Because yes, it's very exciting to, I think it's very exciting. I find it amusing and all of that, but uh, I'm sure when I was in my victim phase, I wasn't finding it very amusing. I thought took it all very seriously. So what's your response in terms of that? Like how do people get into this idea, get um, hooked into that deliciousness Especially when they're filled with anger at the outside world. I mean, we can just look around at our political situation and it's a great excuse to, you know, stay stuck in that place. Yeah, well, so I, so there's a few different ways of looking at it. One way is I don't think that people are ready for this until they're ready for it, you know. <laughs> it's like if when, when they have eyes to see and ears to hear, I hope they will, the message will come to them somehow, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Something I'd like to do when I'm just feeling especially mischievous is um, gently, lovingly point out to people when they seem to be really enjoying their outrage. Like if I find a nice, juicy outrage thread, you know, I might tease somebody about that. I definitely have teased my own friends and family about that immensely. I really think that loving teasing is probably the strongest uh, tool for this. Actually, my husband does this to me all the time. It's it's my own fault for having invented this little philosophy, right? (laughs) Um, Where I'll be like, that was so rude. And he'll be like, having as evidence of wanting. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you're a powerful creator and you witched it out of me. And I'll be like, I did. I love your rudeness. <laughs> it's just like teasing and playing. And what I like to think of it as is um, it's an aesthetic approach to life rather than a moralizing approach. Mm-hmm. So I, I picked this up from Oscar Wilde, who I really, really love. I think he was a, a an enlightened saint of being able to like look at all the world and all the messed up things people do to each other. And being able to appreciate it, just like, you know, when we listen to music, we appreciate all the different range of emotions. When we look at art, we appreciate, you know, the ugly things and the gorgeous things, and we take it all in as part of the larger vision. I think it was Terence McKenna, the great psychedelic visionary, who said, the important thing to remember is that we're all in a crazy work of art. <laughs> and, you know, it's the crazy work of art that the divine is making and we're, we're characters in it. And um, remembering that and remembering to have an appreciative aesthetic relationship with what, what I seem to be creating in my life, what the collective seems to be creating, um, is the doorway at least that's the doorway that I walked through, is just being curious about it. Again, because I kind of got bored with my own moralizing. I guess one day I just hit an apex of righteousness. I think I was <laughs> a Wall Street protest or something. And I was just like, okay, well, that's sort of climaxed there. So that's more advice, is just go, I encourage people to go fully into the, whatever they're doing. Because they're, they probably won't, how do I say this? Um, I like to say, like, stroke people in the direction they're going. That's, that's a <laughs> wisdom of the orgasmic meditation movement, which is all about clitoral stroking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when somebody is going up, 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 you conversationally stroke them up, up, up. When they're going down, 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 and how horrible the world is, and we have this evil president of the U.S., and blah, blah, blah. You know, yeah, it's terrible. We're all going to die. It's just first before we die, we're going to be tortured in these fascist camps, and there's going to be no everything. It's going to be horrible because that's what they're getting off on, right? So, playing along with that, right? So actually, you think you're saying that in actual fact, the communication is almost like a sexual encounter. So you're going with the flow of the movement of the sexuality or the getting off on the experience? Oh, yes, yes, yes. So I might write another book. And if I do, I think I might call it Reality's Orgasm. Uh, (laughs) Because I think what's interesting, what's happening is 
we are perpetually having this deep orgasmic experience, both in all of our interactions with other people, in all of our interactions with the world. Everything that happens is like a stroke in lovemaking, right? Like I like to think about Rumi and he's talking about the beloved and the divine. And it's like the universe is constantly making love to us. It's just like sometimes we like to act like we're not in the mood, right? Like, ugh, get away from me. We have a headache. We have a headache. I have a headache. Exactly. Leave me alone. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, we turn ourselves off, in other words. But there is the possibility that exists of being present with the whole of existence in a receptive, turned-on way Mm -hmm. where we are willing to feel everything and willing to you know, enjoy everything. And sometimes that enjoyment can be like classical enjoyment of fun. And sometimes enjoyment looks like really deeply grieving. I mean, sometimes that is, you know, that's enjoyable. Having a really righteous victim story, highly enjoyable. You know, it's all different faces of enjoyment. And I feel like what, what can be a distinction is like the amount of approval that I'm bringing to my enjoyment. So sometimes I can be really righteous and like in full approval of my righteousness and it's delightful. And and I know it's delightful. It isn't even just secretly delightful. Um, And other times I can be so righteous and not approving of it. And, you know, it's kind of less fun. Mm -hmm. I think the ingredient is how much am I willing to let myself have. And I, I sometimes also talk about havingness levels. So everybody wants to increase their havingness level of money or romance or health or inspiration. Um, The kicker that I find is that there's no way to increase my having this level for the good stuff if I'm not also willing to increase my having this level for the bad stuff. And what I find really fun here is that, um, like I said, our egos, our egos think that they're the whole of our being and our egos are all about the survival of this body. So my ego very naturally wants things that it believes will contribute to my survival. So for everybody to like me all the time, for you know me to have lots of money, for everybody to be sweet to me, um, for my health to be perfect, and for my creativity to be flowing like a fountain, it wants all of that. And anytime anything other than that is happening, my ego wants to be turned off. It wants to be like, this is horrible. Mm-hmm. We're going to die. I hate this. <laughs> And what I found is that just like teasing other people, right? I can tease my own ego. I can be like, you're right. We're going to die. And nobody likes us. Nobody liked our post on Instagram this morning. Clearly, we're going to die. And also, we haven't written an article this week. That means we suck. And because we suck, nobody will love us. So we'll be kicked out of human society and we'll just live in a cave and we'll lick grubs from the floor until we perish right and (laughs) so what that helps me to do is get in touch with a part of me that loves death which I think is my soul my soul loves death my soul loves destruction just as much as my ego loves survival um and of course my soul loves survival my soul loves all of it it loves the whole show um but it's kind of being playful like that that helps me do what what I think is actually very deep work. I would say it's connected to the Philosopher's Stone and alchemy, to the self, you know, the capital S with individuation and Jungian stuff, um, which is get in communication with the wholeness of me that really loves the entire roller coaster and isn't just interested in the high points, but also thinks the low points are super awesome. I love that. It's something I talk to my clients about quite a lot. My, my member, my astrology membership site. Uh, you know, I, I get these groans when I say, "Oh, it's like today's going to be really full of emotion. You're likely to have lots of sads and lots of tears." And everybody's going, "Oh no, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with it. What's wrong with it? <laughs> Enjoy it. It's part of the ups and downs. Have a good cry." <laughs> <You know? laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's part of what we came here for. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so very much, it seems to me that you're talking about taking responsibility for your own life, basically. That's how yes. Yeah. And at a level that most people don't think to go to yeah. <laughs> at the <laughs> level, right? 
Yes. And, and I'm so excited about this because I think this is, you know, the more responsibility we have, the more agency we have. Mm-hmm. And like that Jung quote that I always go back to, you know, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you will call it fate. Mm-hmm. So there's a corollary to that, which is when you are willing to take this kind of super deep responsibility for everything in your life, everything that you experience, knowing that it's either the creation or of your, the personal or the collective unconscious and whichever one it is, you're still, <laughs> you're still doing it at some point, right? basically taking God level responsibility for the whole show. What that opens the door to is God level creativity with your own fate, with your own experience. Um, And that's what I find really fun and really enchanting. I mean, I find all of it kind of enchanting, (laughs) but that's where it gets extra interesting. That's where, um, you know, many people that I've worked with, are able to take patterns they've had, you know, for decades or their whole lives and make them conscious, celebrate them, and then take the energy that was liberated from that, that was previously locked up in maintaining that unconscious pattern and make something new and beautiful. And um, I've done it, I've been able to do it with a few areas of my own life. I'm always working on doing it with more and seeing where else I can go. Uh, But I I just, I love it so much because there's a way in which, um, well, well, it it is magic. It's the essence of magic. And I would love to hear stories from you ladies about times in your life when you've, you know, taken hold of your fate and had turning points and changed the ways that you invested your energy. Oh, well, I will. I've got one, but I'll let Jen talk first. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, it's uh, I'm an Akashic reader and healer. And um, what happened is when I got involved with the Akashic records and started working with my energy in a different way, I it changed my life and how I looked at it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, made me younger, easier, freer, mm-hmm. because actually what's interesting in the records is they always talk about like we've all done everything and there's, you know, it doesn't matter, right? It's just an experience. <laughs> Mm. And um, yeah, so then I realized that I could be the victim, you know, I could live in that story or many of those stories uh, that I just kept repeating to myself, like, oh, yeah, this is my life. This is my story. Or I could just go, fuck that, you know, and I'm just going to do, you know, what I feel is uh, who I am. Uh, And that to me is what's so exciting. And I think that's exciting about what you talk about is this idea of being able to work with the unconscious, work with the stuff that's hidden from ourselves. And, um, and that's what I found like it's freed me Mm -hmm. because I'm looking at that stuff because I'm willing to, um, to push myself into places that I'm terrified of. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. And then when you realize, well, this is fun. Like I have found that I'm laughing so much more at like what the stuff like you talk about is like when these shitty things happen and people always say to me, it's not funny, but actually it is very funny. funny. I know. And I'm laughing especially hard because I always say that in, in these arguments with my husband where I'm like, what are you laughing at? That's not funny. I'm like, oh. Oh, it is, really. Right. So I think that's really key is the the idea that, yes, when you're in pain and things are hurting and it's a struggle, there's one part and that's the part that's kind of very involved in the story is going, oh, this sucks. But there's the other part that's, wow, this is pretty exciting. Like, what would we be doing if we didn't have these things to work through and Mm. and create? We'd be bored. Like, yes. Beautifully said, Jen. Thank you. My my biggest example was when we moved here from Australia to Utah. Um, I did not want to move here. We moved here from a very easygoing um, lifestyle to Utah. (laughs) And I fell into a deep depression, blamed my husband for it all because it was his company that moved us here. I was being a real bitch. I was being horrible. But... um, It was actually Wayne Dyer that uh, changed it around for me, this quote, if you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And I just started to look at things differently and started to look at my own ridiculousness for sitting in this victimhood. And I was like, I don't, 
well, I'm choosing this. <laughs> so, so yeah, your quote. Um, <laughs> and I turned everything around and then I dove deeply into the astrology that I'd studied for years. And I pretty much went along the same path as you. And, you know, I, I now am able to, um, I still do things that maybe I would have been really ashamed of before, but now I'm like, I kind of like that part of me actually. So <laughs> I'm actually going to keep doing it, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love Wayne Dyer. I love, he said, you know, what you resist persists. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is just endlessly so true. Uh-huh. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, not that I do things perfectly all the time either. You know, just just even skim reading your book, there was one extra little pattern that I won't talk about. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm going to use that process for this. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think it's really interesting, though, that we have so much um, conditioning around approval and wanting to fit in that we're terrified to be out there because when we go out there and we say to somebody or out uh, on Facebook or something, Oh, I did this, I did that. And then people get into their like, Oh, how could you do this? You know, so there is that energy out there of kind of, you know, it's the shaming of the uh, collective mm. that in actual fact stops us from going where we need to go. So, um, you know, I think like your book and more and more of these kinds of things and mm-hmm. all of us working on these things really helps us to bust through that uh, kind of bubble of, oh, I can't have something different or I need their approval. So it's like, no, I don't. <laughs> exactly. And I loved, you know, like the story that you were telling, Jen, of coming into your freedom through reading the Akashic Records. Mm-hmm. Um, what I was thinking was, I was like, oh, that's an amazing story of individuation which I love that Jungian term because mm-hmm. obviously it means what it sounds like, like becoming an individual, but it also means becoming undivided, like becoming yeah. indivisible, an individual is somebody who's not divided. Mm-hmm. And so it's like becoming whole in, unto ourselves involves like no longer giving a damn what everybody else is saying. <laughs> and, and, you know, it is quite stark, but I really think that's true. It's like when Jesus in the gospels, like, he was like, mm, I don't really care about my family, whatever. I do what I want. I don't care what you say, priests. I do what I want. He was all about that. And, um, and I think that's what it is. And I think that so much of what magic entails, and I feel like I have to learn this again and again, mm-hmm. because my tendency, maybe all of our tendency, is to first look for external approval or validation of saying like, oh, yes, you are this thing. You're allowed to be this great or this rich or this awesome and I always want to be like okay am I allowed yet did it did it happen yet did did people agree with me that I can have this yet and you know money is a form of agreement and fame and whatever love or forms of that agreement but the agreement has to happen within me first before that reflection comes in the outside world right and um so what I like to try to remember and I'm trying to remember it lately and you're reminding me, is that um, I can just go ahead and have that as my private reality and nobody else has to agree with me until one day they spontaneously do. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. And that speaks to the area that a lot of people talk about when we're talking about magic or any of these things, which, you know, transformation, basically, right? The idea that when you're working with transformation, that a lot of it is private just because of that thing, right? That nobody else is poking holes in your, uh, in your experience until you're ready and more evolved. Mm. Yeah, and I, I really struggled with that part of it. Oh, go ahead, Louise. <laughs> I, I love I love how you talk about magic in the book from the parts I read as well. It's so simple, you know, because magic people tend tend to think of magic as something really like over there, and you you are we are working with magic in everything. I think you said in every word, everything we do, everything is magic, and and I really love that. Do you want to talk a bit, little bit more about that? <laughs> I would love to. This is one of my very favorite things to talk. About. <laughs> I like to say that magic is active, active participation and synchronicity. Because we all have experiences of synchronicity that seem kind of like, whoa, where did that come from? Random, beautiful. 
Um, magic is deliberately creating that. And of course, because the synchronicity is um, a sequence of events that share the same meaning that don't have like a physically causal relationship, mm -hmm. but have, you know, there's an inner event and there's an outer event and they have a resonance of meaning. Um, and there, there may be a whole sequence of them. So we are, since we're constantly creating meaning, we are constantly generating those synchronicities. It's just that we're mostly not doing it actively. We're doing it unconsciously, accidentally. And of course we can create the same boring patterns over and over again. And it's totally magical, but it doesn't feel magical. Because <laughs> it's accidental and it's repetitive and it's kind of ugh, gross. But um, we can decide to take charge of that. And, you know, there's been beautiful inroads in the um, past 150 years in pop culture with the law of attraction and, you know, people learning how to speak what they want into existence. Um, and, of course, every, every ritual, every, like, magical ritual, so witchy rituals where um, I like to do astrological magic or planetary magic, right? So I'll do some Jupiter magic on a Thursday. I'll make sure it's the hour of Jupiter. And I will collect together, right, all of these symbols that have Jupiterian meaning. So like four is the number of Jupiter, right? So four candles, blue is the color, blue, um, a blue bag for my talisman, um, white sage, frankincense, everything I can find that has a Jupiterian association and, and I'll chant for Jupiter. And I will create this like nexus of meanings that mean Jupiter, expansion, stability, fortune, growth. And hot damn, it works. Yeah. You know, so, uh, I, so I love that. I love planetary magic. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, the more somewhat more challenging thing is changing my inner perspective on what I mean and what the world means. Yeah. Um, and that's what I like to use existential kink for and a lot of other various uh, psychologically kind of oriented processes that I teach. Because, um, you know, one of my favorite things to do is to think that I'm not good enough. And then I just perpetually will generate synchronicities that rhyme with not good enough. <laughs> this isn't good enough. That isn't good enough. I'm, you know, I'm still not good enough. I will just, you know, create that again and again. Mm -hmm. And when I can manage to like, you know, change my internal dial to enough, mm. suddenly it's like, whoa, this is more than enough. That's more than enough. Everything's incredible. Yeah. So being aware of that meaning and um, knowing that there's always perfect correspondence between the inner, the outer, you know, as above, so below, the beautiful tenets of hermeticism. And I really think that just applies to all forms of magic all over the world. So anything that you look at, whether it's, um, you know, shamanic, tribal magic, whether it's um, very complicated ceremonial magic with robes and incense mm -hmm. sensors and everything, whether it's buddhist magic where they're making mandalas and it's all about creating densities of meaning mm -hmm. and then you know finding out what unfolds that rhymes with that density of meaning that we have created mm -hmm. so i also love to think about the ways in which and this is where i, I like to get extra weird something that i've been thinking about a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> i know is it even possible to get okay um <laughs> So I think a lot lately about the words at the beginning of, so, oh boy, all right, this is what I'm about to launch into now is when, um, I think I might be a, an evangelical hermeticist. I think oh. I might start knocking on doors and being like, excuse me, ma'am, have you heard the good word of Hermes Trimistagistus? Have you been <laughs> saved by our Lord and Savior? Um, you know, so, because I think about, the opening words of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, the word was with God, and the Word was God. And of course, in the Greek, um, the, the term for Word is Logos. Yes. And Logos is another name for Hermes. Um, yes. And Logos, uh, Word, you know, what is that? It, it's meaning. Like a word is a unit of meaning. So the Logos is the meaning. And then you look over at Tibetan Buddhism, right? And so like one of the, a name for that, one of the highest enlightenments in Tibetan Buddhism is uh, the great symbol, Mahamudra. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. um, also known as the Great Perfection, Zogchen. And so you think, I start thinking like, okay, logos, meaning, symbol. That's, that also has to do with meaning, right? The great meaning, the great symbol, logos, Christ, Hermes. Um, there's a way in which I think that it's been underestimated. People have underestimated in the Western world the way that Hermeticism, astrology, you know, tarot, the reading the Akashic records is a route to enlightenment. Yes. And specifically, it's a route to enlightenment that has to do with a density of meaning. Yes. So a meaningfulness. And I think that the Buddhist path is sort of like, you know, emptiness, like an emptying out. So everything means everything and it means nothing. And you can look at it from either angle, but they both lead to um, really profound recognitions and um, openings. And I guess I just feel like mentioning that because that's been something that's been alive for me lately that I'm very excited about. And like I said, I'm probably going to start knocking on doors <laughs> because I was a conventional Christian for a good, good minute in my life. And right. I could never figure it out. What people seem to be talking about didn't make any sense to me. It didn't seem to be taking me to any deep level of forgiveness or, you know, it just seemed like empty rhetoric. And it wasn't until I started really pondering like, oh, you know, this, this integrative work that we're talking about, like, for example, in the Bible, um, <laughs> Lucifer and Christ are both called the morning star. Yes. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> they're, which suggests that they're the same entity. And starting to realize like, oh, wow, like, uh, the, we're both, we're always both. Yeah. And really accepting that and really getting to be at peace with it, I find leads me to a place where I'm able to be genuinely forgiving, where I'm able to feel genuinely like my life has grace in it, which I think is what the conventional Christians are aiming for. But I don't think many of them are getting to where they want to go. So I, <laughs> yeah, I, think, they, I think they've kind of gone off track a little. Obviously, <laughs> they, they need some EK to work on. <laughs> exactly, Jen. Exactly. So my next idea is maybe I need to go to churches. Will they just kick me out? But they're not supposed to just kick you out if you're being like nice and if you're dressed right, right? So maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's the trick. You look the part, but then inside is all the <laughs> hidden stuff. Be a snake. Be, be a, what is that? Wise as serpents and gentle as doves, something like that. That might be my new tactic. Mm. Thank you, ladies. You helped me think of that. I hadn't thought yeah. of that before. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Because I think what comes to mind when you were talking is this idea that so many people feel the wrongness of or incompleteness of who they are. And, uh, you know, our whole idea or the Christ based, like the cleansed idea, what has been washed, hand washed a million times, right? Um, is this idea that if I'm super squeaky clean, then I will find the approval of God or Christ or any of those things. And obviously that doesn't work because it just activates or enlarges, enlarges what's happening underneath. The dark becomes bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I think that's really the biggest problem with Christianity. Or well, that's what I think of on the outside. <laughs> I think with most organized religions, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, it's, no. uh, yeah, they, so they only want to look at the light and they spiritually override the, the dark completely. Right. But how do you bring that? You see, this is the point is how do you make people realize that, you know, it's through their um, bleaching of um, what is real that they are actually becoming very plastic? Mm, 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 mm. Through their leeching of what is real. Leeching. Leeching. Okay, bleaching. Oh, fascinating. I think I was like transdimensionally hearing you for a second and I was like, yes, they're becoming plastic and malleable. Um, oh. <laughs> That's what I was saying. <laughs> so um, I think that, yeah, so one way that I deal with it, um, other than fantasizing about knocking on doors and just, you know, preaching to people is I do like to remember that it has to do with, you know, how much am I willing to integrate it in myself? Yeah. And I, this might be completely insane and totally vain, 
or it might be just, you know, my way of living Gandhi's like, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. I have a feeling the more I let this penetrate my own being, the more easily I can see it happening, you know, in other beings. And I do actually think, you know, we're having this conversation right now. It's so wonderful. And I can tell like you totally understand. And I'm so excited. It's like my favorite thing to be talking to people who totally understand this. So, um, when I think about times that humanity has taken big leaps forward in consciousness, mm -hmm. it hasn't been, you know, everybody on the planet at the same time agreed. Mm -hmm. It was usually like there was a vanguard of people and even just a few hundred or a few thousand people were like, hey, you know what? <laughs> Actually, yeah. you know, and then they started to change their behavior and they started to change the way that they were organizing things and what they were writing and talking about. And then gradually the rest of the world caught up. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the most recent interesting times that this happened was uh, during the enlightenment when folks started to be like, you know, hey, maybe the welfare of individual people matters. Mm -hmm. Maybe freedom right. is cool. Maybe we can have a separation of church and state. And that is kind of interesting. And also likewise, before that in the Renaissance, when they were like, hey, remember all of those books that we tried burning 2000 years ago by the Greek and the Roman philosophers and the Arabs? What if we looked at those again? Yeah. Whoa, you know? So I do think that um, there is like the very fact that we're having this conversation right now is super hopeful to me. And to me, it means that whether you know it's sooner or later the tides will change and there will be more and more recognition of these you know larger um you know beautiful playful things that we're talking about mm -hmm. and that's that makes me happy it does me too you know and uh, yeah. and i do see it you know in your book my book in other people's work people are starting to change and Jen and I do it in our podcast we try and talk about these things and I, I think if we talk about them in this light way as well I love that you your book makes it fun it's not I, I, you say in it I think don't do the existential <laughs> existential kink if you're depressed because you have to be in a good place to kind of laugh at yourself and look at your dogs <laughs> <laughs> and, look, and look at your own shadow <laughs> Her dog sneeze every time that's there's some important dog. thing that's being yes. said. Whenever I talk about anything, you know, <laughs> connected. It's very important. I agree with your dog. Yeah. It is. It's <laughs> truly, yes, that, that this kind of perspective that we're talking about, if, if somebody is depressed, maybe somebody out there listening, <laughs> I definitely don't recommend trying to do the existential kink meditation when you're in that state because it can lead to rumination. And if you're already, you know, really blaming yourself hard, mm -hmm. you're already in a pit of shame there. You probably need some more conventional help, therapy, good friends, good food, exercise. Then do the exercise. Then do this. <laughs> when you're in a better place, yes. Yeah. It, it does. It takes some, I like to say it takes some free positive energy circulating in your system in order to be able to like alchemize this and like, you know, apply that energy to um, letting enjoyment come forth from something that previously we have sneakily, secretly enjoyed, but have been not willing to consciously enjoy. Well, we're almost at the hour and I know that you're really busy. So um, would you like to tell everybody where they can find you, where they can buy your book, um, yeah. all those kind of things? <laughs> Thank you. Yes, absolutely. So people can find me. Um, I'm on Instagram at Carolyn Elliott underscore. Elliot has two L's, two T's. Um, I have a website. My website is um, carolyngraceelliot.com. And on my website, you can enter your email address and get the first three chapters of my book, which describe the whole process of EK. You can get it for free. Um, you can buy the book um, anywhere books are sold. It's in Barnes and Nobles now. It's, um, it's on Amazon. It's at local independent bookstores. So uh, yes, yeah, so please do buy it. In fact, buy 10. Buy them for your friends. Give them their gifts. And, um, oh, it's on Audible. There's an audiobook version, so you can listen to me read it. You don't even have to sit down and read. Yes. I have, I have an Audible credit. I might get that for the 
Yeah, and I'm doing a, um, I'm launching a membership. Previously, I've taught short courses, but now I'm doing a long-term membership. It's called Wealth, and it's all about creating spiritual and material wealth through applying hermetic principles. So I'm excited for that too. And I will put these links in the description under the podcast and on our YouTube, and I'll send you the links, of course. But um, Jen, do you have anything else to say? Because I was—I just lost my train. Oh no, that was very exciting. I actually pulled a card. I created these cards, um, and so I pulled a card before we started. And I think this is a very uh, kind of apropos. So, Caroline, if there's anything you can see in the card that speaks to you about our conversation. These cards are fantastic, Jen. Uh, well, I mean, I'm seeing, I see Stonehenge. Right. And uh, I'm seeing a whole landscape of, um, of deep cosmic alignment and significance. And I see the number 28, which is the number of days in a moon cycle. It looks like there's a lily pad in the water, which might also be a planet reflecting Mm. Oh, and the Colosseum, yeah. so like deep, ancient, and you know, futuristic or cosmic and dream space things, all intersecting here. Right. What I find interesting is the idea of the 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 person on the what could be a diving board diving into the whole EK thing. That to me is what it speaks of. That looks like an alien to me. So aren't we? we're all aliens, aren't we? <laughs> yes. We're all aliens, indeed. <laughs> oh, and, and, um, and I do want to mention as well that I will be, I run a Venus retrograde class. And a lot of what you've talked about is what I do in the class. Because of course, Venus go, is Inanna who goes down into the underworld and meets her shadow self, Arishkagal. And I'll be running that in May and June. And I'm going to ask everybody who attends my class to buy this because I think this will help them so yeah sorry I was just gonna say if you decide to go to church or something you can just distribute these books maybe yeah. help. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you just leave them in the pews right somebody will find them brilliant <laughs> <laughs> Well, just hang around for a second, uh, Carolyn, but I'm going to say goodbye to our viewers and thank you for listening. And please all just go buy this book. Okay. <laughs> goodbye.